Welcome everyone to our service. For all who've joined us, you come always at a good time, because any time is a good time to listen to God's Word. So let's begin our time by asking the question, what's your view? Your view of life, your view of schools, your view of work, your view of God. Because from your views will come your values. There is a very tight connection between belief and behaviour. There's a very tight connection between teaching and living. And so here are some possible views of God in the world that we live in. First slide comes on. It's the one in front of you. And so sounds a bit technical, but let me try to explain that to you. There is pantheism, there is dualism, there is deism, there is determinism. As you sit down there, it says, it's, it's evening and I'm not very conscious. So what are all these isms about? Let me walk you through each one of them. Pantheism is the belief that uh, it absorbs the world into God, that everything around us is possibly divine and God is possibly in everything. And so in the world that I grew up in, my mother was really religious and spiritual if, um, and she prayed to many different gods. If I fell down somewhere in cycling to and fro from school, I remember she would bring me and say, please tell me where did you fall down, right? And we'll go to the spot there and she finds a tree there, she finds a rock there and there will come the sacrifices and the tree on the rock that I may have, I may have in some unintended way offended the deity which is the rock, offended the deity which is the tree. And so in some religious systems, at least in the one that I grew up in with my mum who was really pious, with her beliefs, it was, it was an outworking of pantheism. God who is everywhere and everything is possibly God. So anything can be God view. From a tree to a rock to a frog in a well to the stars in the sky, that's pantheism. That's a huge belief system. And then there is, we move on to dualism. Dualism divides the control of the world between God and another deity. And so in many belief systems, in many religious systems, there is the good God and there is also the evil God. There is a God of peace, there's also a God of war, there's a God of prosperity, there's also a God of, of, uh, of depravity, of adversity. And so we call this the 50-50 view of God. He's the 50% God. That means he has the right and authority to control half the things of this universe and this world, and the other half is controlled by his adversary. Then there is deism. Deism decouples God as creator from a runaway world. And this is God, the absentee deity view. That means God created something and then after he created it, I, I can create but I cannot rule the world. So it's gone. It's a little bit asking like your teenage children to cook a meal. And uh, the first time in their life they cook a meal, they go out to the supermarket or the wet market, they buy the, the ingredients, they cut up the ingredients, they, as they fry it, they burn it, as they fry it, they mess it up. And so you decide at the end of the day, this meal is not possible to eat. We started with good intentions, but we still have to order by grab. So, so it's a runaway meal. <laughs> So in this system, in deism, it decouples the God who created from the God who can rightly rule. And so God created, but He has no capacity, no power, no sovereignty to rule the world. It's a runaway, runaway world, runaway. And then there is determinism. 
And what is determinism? Determinism is the belief, is fatalism, that dismisses that there is human will and human responsibility. This is the 100% God view and 0% of us view. And so these are just a small smorgasbord, a small survey of what's your view of God. And whatever you believe of this God, what impact does it have in life? And importantly, does it impact eternal life? Or is it to each his own? Whatever you want to believe of God, you just manufacture your belief. It's the God of speculation, it's the God of imagination. When we come to the Bible, again and again the Bible warns us, God is not a creation of your imagination. God is not a creation of your speculation. This God existed before you. So he should, he should tell you who he is. You don't tell him who he is. That would be making God in your own image. And in Romans chapter 1, we call that idolatry. And so when we arrive at this book called Titus, written by Paul to a younger pastor called Titus, we arrive at this key passage that we're going to try to explain as part of our series called Back to Basics. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households. How? How do you disrupt whole households? By teaching them the wrong views about God. And once you teach them the wrong views about God, the living also will be wrong that they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. And so goes on. They're on the island of Crete. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. And so, let me try and summarize that for you. What Titus was facing as he believed in Jesus and tried to teach the truth about Jesus from God's Word. He faced alternative views, an alternative narrative about God, and from the alternative narrative about God came alternative realities, came alternative lifestyles, and you could say, if there are no consequences to truth or half-truth, that's okay. But there are consequences, my friend. There are. And so the marks of the false teachers in the book of Titus, in Crete was, in chapter 1 verse 10, they are called rebellious. Obviously rebellious against God. And what they are teaching is actually empty talk. Far from it being filled with God and His truth in His Word. Right? And so it's empty talk and it's deception. And they ought not to teach this. They should know better that this doesn't come from God. This is not God's revelation of who He is and who we are in His image and how to live between Him and us. It's actually full of Jewish myths. So in all likelihood, this, was, this false teaching was sprouted by who? They were all house churches, by a group of Jewish Christians. And anytime you appeal to Jew, your Jewishness right then, Say, these guys were the original. How many of you, when you go and 
go to a restaurant or food place, you always look for original. Original katong laksa. Original whatever, right? Original tau hui. Original, because original has some authenticity to it. And the moment 2,000 years ago, you say, we, are the, we were the original believers in this. We are the Jewish folk from the nation of Israel where God first worked. And so Jewish myths, but this Jewish myths they were teaching actually reject and they are contra to the truth. And they claim they know God. Sorry, I missed the word. They claim they know God, but actually they deny Him with their life, with their actions. And so this thing that he quotes, Cretans are liars, they are evil brutes, they are lazy gluttons. It's not Paul's way of saying, all Cretans, are, all Malaysians are dot, 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 dot. Don't fill it in. All Singaporeans are, all Americans are, all Canadians are, all Africans are, dot, dot, dot. All Cretans are, He's not giving you a caricature of what a Singaporean is. All Singaporeans are kiasu. All Malaysians are, all Malaysians are what? Easygoing. Right? All, all Americans are loud. All Australians are lazy. That will be a caricature. It doesn't represent the people. But he's actually giving a characterization of the false teachers of Crete. And so there's a difference between caricature, which is not true, and a character, which is true. And so whatever you do not know about the false teachers, they sound really good. They sound really good. In fact, there is some authenticity to them. There is some originality to them because it is Jewish myths, right? But they are liars. They are evil brutes. They are lazy gluttons. The marks of false teaching, when you back away far, far enough, about their view of God and their view of spirituality was totally mistaken. We call them single-issue Christians. And single-issue Christians have always done harm to what? Because all the time they will keep highlighting, okay, you guys believe in Jesus, but what kind of, what kind of baptism do you all undergo? You, you guys believe in Jesus, but what kind of holy communion do you do? You guys believe in Jesus, but what version of the Bible? It's just single issue, single issue, single issue. And sometimes the single issue drowns out the singular gospel. It's quite easy to test this. That if you have a Christian marriage, or so-called Christian marriage, then the number one thing you talk about all the time is what kind of prayers really please God. Instead of saying, Jesus, God tells us to pray, and we pray and we start to judge each other, or your small group, every time you gather, now we can't gather, we haven't gathered for about a year now, right? and the number one thing when people come to church is just the single issue about something. It could be doctrine, or it could be just things about the church. Every week, people will talk about the lack of car parking here, how it is really a test of sanctification as you walk from Arcadia to here. You can really feel the weight of your ungodliness disappear. Uh, did I? Uh, yes. So anything could become single issue. And we don't know the exact nature of the single issue, but it has something to do with their Jewishness. Second thing we can pull out from this, as we back away far enough from the problem, right, but to understand the problem, is that there was a disconnect between their so-called teaching from God, their spiritual teaching, and their very ungodly living. 
And the third thing we can, there's false religious party, very focused on the things that you must do externally, but not focused on the internal purity of your heart. What you think, what your heart longs after, how you speak, is more concerned about what attire you wear, how you look, what rank, and all those different things that give us the false impression of piety. And so, in contrast to that, Paul writes this, but as for you, in contrast to the false teachers and the false teaching, which gives a flawed view of God, a flawed view of spiritual life that has massive implications both now and for eternal life, I want you, Titus, to teach what accords to a very big word in this epistle, sound teaching. The English word is sound, but the Greek word is actually healthy teaching. From healthy teaching will come healthy living. Healthy teaching, healthy body, healthy living in terms of relationship with God. And so in chapter 2, verse 2 to 9, he will then teach this healthy teaching specifically to every age group and to both genders. You teach the older men, Titus, though you are younger. You teach the older women. You teach the young men. But did you notice? He never tells Titus to teach the younger women. We say something about pastoring and ministry. It's not just for me, it's for anyone. It is a risk for us when we get into a one-to-one -one situation with women. And that's a lot of problems there. Because Christendom has just been hit with the scandal, the horrendous scandal of Ravi Zacharias. And so you teach older men, you teach older women, you teach young men, you teach, and then the older women are to teach the younger women. But our focus for today's passage, given that it's a new member service and we have to conduct that, I'm just going to zoom in from verse 11 to verse 15, what we did in our small groups. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no, say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives, when, in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so, as you read this, the first thing that should strike you, the first thing that you need to understand is what? This is a passage about how to live from Monday to Sunday. No, friends. This is a passage. So let me ask you, you want to turn to your neighbour and ask them, you can't. But if I gave you the chance, say, how do you live between Sunday and, uh, between Monday and Sunday? You're living between the whole week. How do you live between the first of each month and the 31st or 30th of each month? In some places, they will say, how do I live between the first when I get my pay or my salary and 30th? I live from hand to mouth. Here he's asking, how do you live between the first appearing of Jesus and the second appearing of Jesus. And the Greek word for this is the English word that becomes English, epiphany. Between the first epiphany of Jesus, it was the first appearing of grace. Now, it's very important that we get this right because the word grace, right? For those of us Christians, the most frequently used of grace is whenever you say, uh, whenever you pray before you eat. But the meaning of grace is slightly bigger and more important than just before you eat. God has not just graced your food. 
God has graced the whole universe by creating us. God has graced you by creating you and me in His image. The whole of human history is grace. So that's why a history of grace. And specifically for the nation of Israel, God should have judged the whole world from turning from the rightful worship of Him to the idolatry of self. But He graced Israel with His plan to save the world. But the final full outpouring of grace was in the person and the work of Jesus. From Jesus' humble birth to His humble ministry to His humiliating death on the cross. When you bump, if you bump into Jesus 2,000 years ago, what would you bump into? You will bump into the grace of God. If you met Jesus 2,000 years ago, you would say, I do not know who this, this man is but I bump into someone I've never met before. He's just full of grace, full of the humility of God in human flesh. The second appearing of Jesus is when He comes again, the second appearing of glory, the promise of glory. And so, as God's people, we live between two appearings, and that's very important. The first appearing where we get the hugest largest dose of grace in the person and work of Jesus from His humble birth to His humiliating death on the cross. And then we are looking forward to the second appearing, the glory of Christ when He comes. The first time He came, nobody noticed. Only some shepherds noticed. And very, very unimportant people in Israel noticed because they were directed by God to notice His humble birth. But the second coming of Jesus nobody's going to say, hey, he came. Uh. Where? You're not going to miss that. 2,000 years ago when he was born, whoops. Yeah. Are you still with me? Yeah, just checking. Okay. Children make uh, nice music. I, we can't say noise because children are welcome in God's family. I know it's difficult. It's a challenge. Right? And so when Jesus returns, there is no mistaking in fact, in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's whether you bow willingly or you bow unwillingly, as God will make Satan and all who follow him bow the knee. There is one who will rule the universe. He is the one who died on the cross. He's the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who washed away your sin. He's the one who reversed death. He's the one who took you from an enemy of God to be a child of God. He is. He will come in glory. And nobody's going to say, oh, I missed that. You know what it's like to miss something glorious? Right? Of course, we can't have it now. Let's say your, your star, your, um, somebody you like, a singer that you like comes and you want to get tickets to just watch him in action or watch her in action. You know, I remember years ago, Whitney Houston came and people were trying to get tickets to listen to Whitney Houston. Whoever, if you miss that, you miss big time you won't miss the second coming of Jesus. You just have to make sure, and I just have to make sure, that you rightly respond to Him. In between the first appearing of the grace of God and the glory of Christ, at any time He will come like a thief in the night, we are called to pursue godliness. So between grace and glory, godliness. Between grace and glory, godliness. It's very simple, just three Gs from this sermon. Between grace at the beginning and glory at the end, I now, by the, by the grace of God, 
by the word of God, the spirit of God, I pursue godliness in my life and your life. Living between two appearings of Jesus. And so one writer said, it was John Stott said, in the first part you meet grace, the saviour. Grace in the person of Jesus that saves you. But you know what Paul actually says here? This grace, right, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So now we meet grace, the teacher. The grace of God in Christ and by His Spirit teaching us. So we are fully graced by Jesus and the Spirit to now please God. No longer to live a life that grieves God and incurs His rightful anger and His coming wrath upon the human race. So I ask of you again, are you living between Monday and Sunday? Are you living between the first of each month and the thirtieth of each month? And for many people, it's just hand, hand to mouth. Are you, are you living between the two appearings of Jesus? Are you living? The alternative, if you don't believe in this narrative, that from God's perspective, He now has human history marked out as first coming, second coming. And because it's marked on God's calendar, it should be marked on your calendar and my calendar. But if you choose to have your own narrative and from your own story or narrative, you have your own reality and your own lifestyle, then you're choosing to live between two nothings. You're born, and you're born to, if you ask your parents, Mommy, why, why did I come to the world? And your mommy says, uh, no purpose, la, you just came. Right? So that's the scientific view. You just evolved from molecules and atoms, you just came, and you found yourself here, so just carry on being a molecule and an atom. And while you're here, please, please just enjoy yourself to the max. We call that hedonism, and we call that existentialism, because you just came from no one, you came from nowhere, and you're going to no one, and you're going to nowhere. So in between, if you started with nothing, you're going to end with nothing. In between, there's also nothing. That's what the false teachers, the essence of their teaching was. There were no consequences to what you believe in. There are no consequences to how you live. So I want to ask myself and ask you, you living humbly between the two appearings of Jesus, or are you living foolishly between two nothings? God will say to you in His Word, choose wisely. This one means you're going to heaven. This one means you're going to a different place and God so names it hell, eternal separation from Him. So living without an end in mind, living without accountability because you're living without God, your Creator, your Ruler, your Sustainer, your provider, your protector, and ultimately your redeemer, and ultimately there's another side of God that you and me have to realize. He is our rightful judge. That he will ask Christopher Cha, as he will ask you, Barry, as he will ask you, Lakyong, I gave you a life of 50 years. I gave you a life of 70 years. How on earth did you live that life? And you say, I was living between two nothings. I just live it for myself. Every day was just max out my pleasure, just max out myself. That's secularism. That's atheism. And so the pursuit of holiness has two parts to it. We say no to ungodliness. 
and we say no to worldly passions. And ungodliness is basically the cancelling of God in your life, the negation of God in your life, the emptying of God in your life. So you say, okay, that sounds, what, what does that mean? The cancelling of God in my life, the negation of God in my life, right? In Titus itself, he gives you a view in chapter 1. He says, when you choose leaders of the local church, of God's church, as part of God's universal and eternal church, the leaders you should choose must be above reproach, which means not perfect, but have a good reputation in Pungo, where you live. He must have a good reputation in Topayo. He must have a good reputation in Block 42 that you live. He must have a good reputation as God's steward, somebody who knows God. He must not be proud. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a drunkard. His life mustn't be a runaway life where I'm trying to cope with the harshness of life by drinking myself away. He must not have a reputation of being violent maybe with his wife or his children. He must not be greedy for gain. Any one of those things is the cancelling of God. God created you to be humble, dependent upon you. All of a sudden, you went to the good, a good school, you have a good job, you think you made life and you're a self-made man, you're a self-made woman. That is the cancelling of God in your life. The negation of God in your life. God never created you to be independent. He always created you to be totally dependent on Him from your first breath till your last. And in between, when you can sprout, strut around like a peacock, we forget, oh, I've, I'm on top of things now. I went to the right school, I went to the right university, I've got the right connections, I made it, I'm self-made. There's no such thing as the self-made man and woman. There is only the God-made man and woman. So pride cancels humility, dependence, quick-temperedness. And why do you get upset? You and me get upset when you don't get your way in life, in relationships, right? And so we get a bit hot under the collar, or drunk, or violent, the cancelling of God in our lives. He will give you another passage in chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. If you don't know God, you choose not to know God, God calls you foolish, calls me foolish. That we are disobedient against God, we are led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. You want to turn to the person next to you, you are a slave. They don't like that, right? I'm not a slave, I'm in charge of my life. Whatever I want to do, I do. No, according to God, whatever you want to do, you do. That makes you a slave to your passion, a slave to your pleasure. The question you want to ask in life is, can I start smoking? Can I start drinking? Can I start pornography? You can start, but can you stop? Not that any of those things are good for your God-given body. You can start. I mean, you think you have the freedom to start, but you don't have the freedom to start. Because you're not a self-made man. You're not a self-made woman. You're not a self-made teenager. You're made in the image of God and will be held accountable to Him. And so we pass our days in what? Read carefully. We pass our days in malice. Hated by others and hating others. What a wonderful way, what an astute and spot-on way to describe your life and my life without God. 
that without God, from morning to night, from Monday to Sunday, you either spend being hated by people or hating other people. God created us to love Him and to love neighbour and to be loved by neighbour in return and to serve neighbour and to be served by neighbour in return. But when we live without God, is the cancelling of God in thought and word and deed. So I ask on behalf of God for myself and for you, are you living between two appearings or living between two nothings? When we live between two nothings and think there is no one who gave us a certain beginning and no one who will bring a sure ending to my life, then you live without accountability. The pursuit of holiness has, you say no to ungodliness, you say no to the cancelling of God in your life, you now say yes to self-control, upright and godly lives in this present age. This word appears the most in Titus chapter 2. The root word is translated self-control. You now live sensible lives, which means before you came to know God, before you came to acknowledge Jesus as Saviour and Lord, from God's perspective, you are a fool, right? I'm a fool. You are totally insensible. You may be very intelligent, I may be very intelligent, but in God's eyes, we are insensible. And if, if only in coming into faith union with Jesus, I now am offered the possibility of a self-control life, which means previously I was an out-of-control person. Can you acknowledge before God that before you know Him, if you don't know Him, the definition of God of you is that Waylon is out of control. Albert is out of control. You're an out-of-control person. Nobody can control you. But God can. And God has done it. But the giving of Jesus to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, and He will return. And so the filling up with godliness against in Titus itself, you will find, hey, previously... So self-centered, but now the leaders you choose must be hospitable. They must be lovers of good, not doers of evil. They must be self-controlled. They must be sensible now. They must be upright and holy and disciplined. And so there are two ways to live. From the two narratives that we have to choose from. And he goes on before he ends in verse 15. While we wait for the blessed hope, and what is it that we are waiting for? the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so whatever you... Here is another way to think of yourself. If you, if you say, okay, describe a Christian to me. A Christian is dot, dot, dot. A follower, a believer and follower of Jesus is dot, dot, dot. A, a Christian and a follower of Jesus is a waiter. Very good waiters. So who can tan kuku? We can and how long, how cool already? How long? 2,000 years. The church has been waiting for the head of the church to return in all his glory. Whatever you do not know about the Christian life, it's a long wait. But it's a good wait because he will turn up. You can stick your life on the Lord Jesus. You know why? Because he gave your life, he gave his life for you and for me. And so we are waiters. I do not know what circumstances you face now. As another year rolls up, 2021. And what's going to happen to you this year? 
I have no idea, you have no idea. Right? Which relationships might break up? What illnesses might strike you? Would you lose a loved one? Don't know. Whatever happens to you, you choose to wait for the glorious return of the Lord Jesus, who will reverse the, all the unglorious things of our life, living in our fallen nature, living in our fallen world. And the basis of this, why must you be waiters? And as you wait, you must be doers of God and godliness. He gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And so Jesus gave his life to redeem us from a bo-ching-hu life, lawlessness. I belong to nobody and nobody belongs to me. I just do whatever I want. You and me are just lawless people. No need to be dependent on anyone. Self-made in every way. No. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, is seated at God's right hand, and one day will return. And as, he, as we wait for his return, he has purified the people for himself to do what? Eager to do good works, to live a totally different life to what I was before God hit me with grace, before God invaded my life with undeserved grace in the person and work of Jesus. So the choice before us is a very stuck one. I just had a, hosted the AGM for the English Presbytery and I shared this. In the book of Revelation, Revelation, John the Apostle, he gets a vision and the vision is God calling his people, purify yourself, purify yourself, come out of Babylon, come out of Babylon, don't let Babylon get you, don't let Babylon get you. So, the vision is not just encouraging them about Jesus as Alpha and Omega, but warning them of Satan and how he works against the church. No sermon on asking you to live a godly life can be complete without bringing the arch enemy of, of God, the arch enemy against Christ, the arch enemy against you and me. It's not your father. It's not your mother, it's not your son, it's not your daughter. Your arch enemy is only one. His name is Satan. And Satan's strategy, as you know from Genesis 3 to Revelation, which is also here at work, right, in, in Titus, in the church at Crete, his, his main strategy is domination global domination and personal domination of Lak Yong and personal domination of, of you, of Clement. How? By imitating God. His number is 666. He's always making life in Babylon more real than the promised new life in the new Jerusalem, purchased by the blood of Jesus, promised by the finished work of Jesus. And Satan does that really, really well in a few things. Satan will seek to dominate you by what? There are four main tools he uses against Christians in the church. He will firstly try persecution. Persecution. He'll strike fear in you. So your fear of living in Singapore, your fear of living against your parents who say, why you join the boys' brigade? Why you join the girls' brigade? How come you join Discovering Christianity? We had some testimonies like that. 
These are adult people joining our Discovering Christianity. And they, as adults, their parents still oppose them. So they had to quietly go and zoom in a corner of their flat to join Discovering Christianity and just for newcomers. That being fearful of your parents and being fearful of people who oppose you, you, you post on Facebook, you post on Instagram, I believe in God, I believe that God created us, men and women, and it should always be between men and women in marriage. You put that up as a teenager and you become a victim of an alternative sexuality in this world. Satan dominates by persecution, by seduction, by confusion of doctrine, which he's doing now in Titus Church, and then by division. If he cannot get you through persecution, he cannot, cannot get you by seduction and pornography, he cannot get you by false teaching that looks so real on the outside, but inside is totally bankrupt, he will get you by fighting with each other in Christian families, in Christian fellowship. So which one is he using against you? Looks a bit wordy, but let me explain that to you. Persecution, where your fears experience in Babylon, where your fears experience of Babylon is more real than your faith in Jerusalem. Seduction, when your idolatries of Babylon are more pleasing than your glory of God in the new Jerusalem. Confusion, when our worldviews in Babylon sound so good, is more attractive than Jesus dying on the cross to save me from Satan, wash me from sin, to reverse death. I mean, what is death? Why you guys are so afraid of death? It's just because you haven't faced it yet. And division. In church, we're called to love each other robustly, deeply, honestly, sincerely, but many of us just tolerate each other after a certain skirmish, a misunderstanding. I ask on behalf of God, for you to live a godly life, you need to know the arch enemy against God, against Christ, against the church, against you as a professed believer in Jesus. Which one is he? You're consumed by the father of lies and you then say, there is no new heavens and new earth. There is no new Jerusalem. When we do that and we give up, we are consumed by the father of lies. And so that's why we gather here, no matter how difficult it is. That's why you zoom in to listen to this. How frequently in a week, zoom in. We are to, and Paul tells Titus, please keep declaring these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Doesn't matter who the false teachers are. Doesn't how, matter how persuasive their false teaching is. You just keep going, knowing that this message has come from God. And this message is about the Messiah and let no one disregard you. So no matter how many people snipe at you, shoot at you, you keep going, Titus. And that's the only reason I stand here. Keep going. But as you read it in chapter 3, it says, you keep going, you know why? Because the Holy Spirit is working in you. It's not that Lakyong can keep going and Arrow can keep going by their own steam and Chris can keep going. I can't. Left to myself, I would never have arrived at my 31st year here. I would have been shot to bits by Satan. But because the Holy Spirit lives in us and you pray for me, as I pray for you, then we can do this, friends. And that's why year after year, 
that even through a COVID-19 year, the number of people signing up for discovering Christianity, the number of people signing up for just for newcomers. Read their testimonies here that we're going to proceed very soon. Wonderful stories, all the way from our prison's ministry to every ministry across the board. We are unashamedly declaring the gospel, declaring that God is God and Jesus is Lord, that we live between His two appearings. And we do well now to pursue godliness instead to cave in to Satan and cave in to sinfulness. Keep doing this. Jesus knows when you are saying no to sin. You know how hard it is to say no to sin? You know how hard it is to say no to sin? Let me just do a survey. Let me do a survey online. You know how hard it is to, do, to say no to sin? As you sit in your room, sitting on the sofa, are you sitting up? Are you sitting down? Are you a diligent worshipper or a sloucher? You're just watching this anytime you want? Last time it used to be, oh, 5 o'clock, Saturday, our worship together. 9 a.m., Sunday, our worship together. 11.30 a.m., we'll worship together. Now, anytime, suka suka. You know how hard it is to say, it's not hard to say no to ungodliness. It's impossible. It's not something you can do because there is no power within you and me to say no to Satan, to say no to sin. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? With Jesus Christ as our Lord, with the Spirit as our counsellor and comforter, with the Word of God as our enlightenment, we can say no. That belonged to my past. doesn't belong to my present. And I'm going to say yes to God. You know how hard it is to say yes to God and godliness? It's impossible. But it's now totally made possible. And not just possible, the possibility, but the absolute necessity of this. I highly encourage you to read with humility and to take to heart every single testimony that is here because they all point to the grace of God appearing and them experiencing and it points to them being waiters and doers of godliness while they wait for the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.